Wow, what a, what a great day, huh? Anytime you can have little babies on the stage, it's just a great day. Um, we sang a song earlier called A Thousand Names. It's a new song to you, so you'll kind of pick it up in the next few weeks. But we're starting a new series this, this week, and I'm kicking us off, and then I'm leaving for three months, and we've got a whole bunch of incredible communicators that are lined up for you, and um, I'm sure I'll be sneaking around trying to hear some of them, um, and they're all very different, but they all are going to carry this same theme of highlighting an attribute of God, something that's true about him, or talking about one of his names and what that name represents. And not just to learn the names of God because there's more than a thousand names for God. Why? Because he has so many beautiful attributes that can be described in a name. But I really believe that as we learn the names of God and who he is, then we can begin to understand how do we, how can we imitate that? How can we imitate that trait? Or how does that affect our worship? Or how does that affect the way that we live every day? And so I'm really, really excited about this series. And um, as my friends are communicating, please give them the same rapt attention that you give to me. And uh, they will give you grace if you fall asleep, um, like as do I on occasion. You know, in this past series about rhythms, I talked about the posture of obscurity. And this is something that very few people talk about. Very few people talk about the healthy posture of obscurity. That you would be unknown. It was A.J. Swoboda who said this. There is a very healthy place for obscurity in the Christian walk. It is there in obscurity, not in the lights, that our character is most formed. We need obscurity. Jesus lived in obscurity for nearly 30 years before entering the public ministry. He was largely unknown, except for one little trip to the temple when he was 12, when he seemed to have gotten lost in the wash cycle and left at the temple. And yet the idea of obscurity begins to challenge our hearts as humans. Why? Because much of the world would say, no, I don't want to be obscure. In fact, there's, I have a fear of being ordinary. It's a real thing. It's a real phobia. Because if I'm ordinary, then I won't be extraordinary. And if I'm not extraordinary, I won't be loved. So if I'm not blank enough, fill in the blank for yourself, I won't be seen and I won't be loved. You ever feel like that? I certainly have. And the way that the world would define obscurity out of the Webster's or whatever is being unknown, inconspicuous, and unimportant to the world. But our Christian worldview says that is not fully true. That's partly true that the world may not know who I am. The world may not clap for me and say, you're the very best ever at that. I may be unknown to the world, 
But the truth is, as I read God's word, what I see is that I am seen and known and loved by God. Therefore, I can live in obscurity knowing that the one who matters the most absolutely delights in me and you. So this kind of obscurity looks different than just being cast aside without value because you're incredibly valued by God. So I want to build on this as I talk about our first name of God. And it is in Genesis 16. This is all about Hagar who actually names God. I don't know if she's the only one in the Bible who names God. I, I don't think I've really done that study, but it feels like it. It's not that God is revealing, this is my name. She's saying, this is who you are. Therefore, I'm going to call you this. This is what you're going to be known to me by. So that when I go after you again, I'll know what to call you. So in Genesis 16, she calls God this name, the God who sees me. So this morning, we're going to look at this name. And we're going to see that when we realize we are seen and known and loved by God, our identity shifts, and we begin to walk out the mission that God's called us to. So let's just take a look at Genesis, shall we? The context, we've got Abraham and Sarah. Now, at this point, they're not renamed Abraham and Sarah yet. You're just Abram and Sarai. But probably I'll slip up and just call them Abraham and Sarah. So just give me some, some permission to like go forward in time because that's who they're going to be. God's going to rename them. And so here's the context. Abraham, this incredible man, he's called by God in Genesis 12. He's, God says, go to the land that I will show you. Uh, where's the map, God? Nope, you're, I'm just going to show it to you. Go by faith. And so he leaves. And through a long set of circumstances, God says, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to make you a great nation. Oh, cool. This is great. Now, he's not real young. He's like, well, he's past social security age. Let's just put it that way. And, and wait a second. I'm going to have kids? Okay, this is great. So they, they go out. They, there ends up being a famine. So they take a little bit of a jaunt through Egypt where there's food. All the while, he gets threatened and doesn't say, this is my wife, Sarah. He says, oh, this is my sister, because they shared the same dad. I know, that's just really weird. It's the Bible. I don't know. And sometimes it just gets weird. Just go with it. And so Pharaoh takes, him, takes her as a wife, and the Lord appears to Pharaoh. Nope, nope, nope. Pharaoh goes, what are you doing? It's been revealed to me this. Go, get out of here. In fact, I'm going to give you some stuff. And one of the things that Pharaoh gives is some servants. That's going to come up in our passage, right? So they are heading to the land that God will show them that we call Canaan. And they head north and they end up separating from his nephew Lot. And he pitches his tent in Hebron. And at that point, God doubles down again and makes another covenant. Same covenant, but goes, hey, I know it's been a while, but I'm going to tell you, Genesis 15, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, uh, his, the guy that he's going to, inherit all of his stuff who's not related to him. It will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. You're not going to adopt this one. This one's going to be your, your physical son. Then 
God took him outside and said, look up at the heavens, count the stars indeed, if you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Really clear message, really clear promise. I'm doubling down now, Abram. You're gonna have a son from your own body. That's the context as we get to Genesis chapter 16. It's been 10 years. And they're like, uh, the pregnancy tests keep coming back negative. God, what's going on? And they're getting impatient, just like you and I do when we feel like God's promised us something and it just feels like God is slow. But God's word explains to us, God is not slow in keeping his promises. So here we are in chapter 16, verse one. The words will be on the screen or you can read in your Bible or your digital things. Verse one. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So Sarai is going, hey, God has closed up my womb. He's sovereign over these things. Maybe we can help God out a little bit and speed up the process. This is so painful. Can you imagine the pain in her heart? Hope deferred makes the heart sick, Proverbs 13 says. I gotta imagine she's so heart sick. She's so tired of everybody else having kids and yet she's been to all of the baby showers and she doesn't ever get her own. People are wondering, um, you're a senior citizen, when are you gonna have kids? You should have grandkids by now. The pain of prayers not answered, the, pray, the, the pain of, of not being able to hold your own child and going through a struggle with infertility, I know just about this tiny bit, and it's so painful. And then in the culture, the pain of public shame, that by now I'm supposed to have a child if I'm really supposed to come through for my husband, and I haven't. So there was, there was an ancient tradition that you could kind of have a surrogate, if you will. And this, the tradition, uh, the Hebrew tradition, is that Hagar is actually a gift from Pharaoh when Abraham has his little excursion down there in Egypt. And some even postulate, now I'm on a limb. I always tell you when I'm on a limb, it's kind of fun to go out there for a second, um, that this is actually someone from Pharaoh's family, from his household. I don't know if that's true, but we'll kind of walk it back and say she's a maidservant from Egypt. Now, um, it would be normal for that day to have your maidservant or your concubine have a child on your behalf, and then it would become your property or your child. And I could see Sarai going, you know, God promised to Abraham, not to me. Therefore, maybe this is the way that we're going to do it. He didn't specifically mention me. Maybe you're the father of many nations, Abram, but I'm not the mother. Continuing verse, verse two. <clears throat> Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Now, when you really look at these words, they don't get married. This is, she's given as a wife or like a substitute or concubine. And so I can't imagine how tormented Sarai was. Like, maybe my husband would be better off with someone else. And it was really bad for Sarah to hold on to that thought. It was even worse 
that Abram, her, her husband, actually listened to her and did what she suggested. As a husband, I've learned that it's usually really good to do what your wife says. It keeps everything a lot better. But every once in a while, you gotta, you gotta say no. And this was a moment I wish Abraham would have said no. However, even when we miss it, even when we mess things up, God has a way of making things beautiful out of the dust. Verse four, so Abram, he sleeps with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. And then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong that I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Oh man, have you seen the Sister Wives show? This whole multiple marriage thing, the wife thing does not work out at all. And at this point, pride rises up in Hagar. I'm finally something. I'm not just a slave. I'm giving Abraham his heart's desire. What do you do? What have you done for me? What have you done for him lately? So the pride rises up. And I'm sure this brokenhearted Sarah just decides, all right, well, I could be a jerk too. We could do this. So now all of a sudden she rises up and, and she, the first thing she does is blame, right? Abraham, this is your fault. I think it's both of their faults. Let's just be honest. But they both messed this thing up. It's your fault, Abraham. Verse six, your servant is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, and so she fled from her. Oh, it's, getting, it's going from bad to worse. Like, we already messed this thing up. Now we've got this abuse going on. You get this pride and, and a, a really hurt woman. And, and now it's this competition thing. So Sarah deals harshly with her, and she flees from her presence, it says. All Hagar thinks to do is, I just got to run. I just got to get out of here. You probably feel like that a lot too. I just want to get in my car and start driving and never come back. Anybody ever think that besides me? I'm the only one that's ever thought that? Okay, good, I'm glad. Just making sure you're awake and honest. The, the Hebrew words here for mistreated and flee in Hagar's story are the same two words that are going to be used in, in Exodus to describe Israel's abusive slavery and their subsequent leaving or exodus out of, out of Egypt. There's just this really beautiful, strong parallel between the Egyptian slave being afflicted by Abram's wife and years later, the Egyptians afflicting with slavery Abram's descendants. So she bails, she runs away. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert, and it was, that, it was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. In other words, we know where it is. Where is Hagar going? She's going home. If you follow the line between Hebron and Shur, he's, she's heading back to Egypt. It's all she knows. She's just going back to where she came from. And estimates are that that's about a 50-mile journey before we get to this spot. She's traveling by herself. She's pregnant. I don't know how much stuff she's got with her. But this is a woman who is 
very vulnerable. I can't imagine how afraid she was. And yet she felt like she was better off taking her chances in the wilderness than staying in Abram and Sarah's tent. Ouch. Then we've got this angel of the Lord. Do you ever wonder what this is? What is the angel of the Lord? I'm glad you asked. Because the Bible Project people are going to tell us in a minute and 32 seconds, just a little bit about the angel of the Lord. Roll film. So in the Bible, reality is made up of two overlapping realms, the heavens and the earth, our space and God's space. And while life here on earth may seem ordinary, sometimes we can encounter heaven right here in our own realm. Yes, this happens a number of times in the Bible. And when it does, we often encounter a fascinating character, the angel of Yahweh, or in most translations of the Bible, the angel of the Lord. Now we've talked about angels. They're spiritual messengers who perform missions for God. But the angel of the Lord is no mere angel. How so? Well, every time he appears, he's described in a way that's purposefully puzzling. And it leaves you wondering, was that an angel sent by Yahweh? Or was that Yahweh himself? What do you mean? Here's one of many examples. In the book of Genesis, there's a story about Hagar, Abraham and Sarah's runaway Egyptian slave. And we read this. The angel of Yahweh called to Hagar. But then this angel speaks as if he is Yahweh, saying, I will give you many descendants. And then Hagar responds and says, you are God who sees me. So the angel of Yahweh is Yahweh. But that can't be. In the Bible, you can't see Yahweh or you'll die. Yeah. So this story and others like it are inviting us into a paradox that Yahweh is above all, inaccessible to us. But sometimes he reveals himself to us in ways that we can see and understand. And that's where this character shows up. He's Yahweh made visible to us. Yes, distinct from Yahweh and also Yahweh. Okay, he's, all, he's Yahweh, but he's distinct from Yahweh. Does that clear it up for you? Now, if you want to watch the rest of the video, bibleproject.com, or you can grab the app for your devices. This is a part of the Spiritual Beings series, and it clears up a lot of thinking as far as spiritual beings. But the angel of the Lord, most of us believe, and, and here in this passage, you've got the angel of the Lord speaking as if he's the Lord. So I believe this is the second person of the Trinity, the one that we know as Jesus, showing up before he comes in human form. And he's taking on some kind of characteristics of a person or a messenger um, and clearly has, it's, a, it's different than just a normal person. So the angel of the Lord shows up. By the way, this is the first time that the angel of the Lord shows up in the scriptures. We don't see the angel of the Lord before this and we will see the angel of the Lord subsequently. And what does the angel of the Lord say? Glad you asked. Verse eight. And he said, Hagar, Servant of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. So here's someone who knows her name and who she's attached to. Immediately, there's this word of knowledge that there's no one else that could have known. She's 50 miles from home, and yet she bumps into this angelic being and she thought she knew where she had come from. I came from a hor most horrible place ever. I can hear my teenage kids saying this. It was so bad. It was horrible. It was the worst. We had to eat peanut butter and jelly. It was awful. Where are you going? I'm going nowhere. 
Whenever in the, the, in the Bible, whenever God asks a question, he's not looking for information. He's going, you know, I didn't know where you came from. I mean, he already tells her who she's related to. So it's clear that God knows what's going on. But he's asking the question so that you'll think about what the answer is and plunging deeper into your heart. Because oftentimes we make decisions based on everything on the surface instead of really looking into the heart. Out of the heart flow the issues of life. Out of the heart the mouth speaks. Therefore, above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. So, this kind of language, I always love to talk about Jesus. So let's just talk about Jesus for a second, shall we? Jesus uses this kind of language in John 8. He says, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. That's interesting. That sounds a lot like the angel of the Lord. I think it might be the same person. John 13, verse 3. And he had come from God and was returning to God. That's where he came from and that's where he's going. Pretty simple for Jesus. Not as simple for Hagar. And so she's trying to figure out what is my story. This is one of the things here at Neighborhood Church that we really honor and we hold as sacred, and that is your story. That God has been shaping you through people, events, and circumstances for your entire life, and he's been seeding your future by the things that have been happening in the past. Some of you have gotten to to a crossroads place, like Hagar was in a crossroads place where she's like, I don't feel like I can stay there, but I don't know that I can go back to Egypt. I'm kind of in between. And some of you, you're even feeling that right now. You need some clarity to try to figure out how to move forward. The way that we help people get clarity here at Neighborhood Church is through a post-it note timeline. And it's just an exercise where you, you write down the people, events, and circumstances where God has been shaping you and what he's been doing. And then it begins, you begin to draw a line and see the trajectory of where God might be taking you. And not forever, but at least in this next season to the horizon. Just for the next six months, God, what might you be calling me into to be, how to be with you and my relationship with you, but also the things to do as an extension of the fact that you love me. You pour your love into me so that I can love one another. But that clarity comes from looking at your past and finding God moving in your past and seeding your future. We'll do another focused living seminar this fall. And this is specifically uh, what we do. But if you're in a stuck place, while I'm gone for three months, we have this incredible staff who could sit down with you and they could even help you create a timeline and help you understand what God has been doing and what he might be doing in you next. So the idea of your story, where have you been and where are you going is so important. It's important to God. And I believe as an application point for you, if you feel like you're walking in the wilderness, maybe these are the two questions you need to ask. God, where, where, what have you done in the past? And when you rehearse God's goodness for the past, it gives you faith and strength to stand in the current moment. And it gives you new vision for your future. Because most of us picture our future all by ourselves. But that's not a biblical view of the future. Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's the God who sees us. And so that God who sees will always be next to us. So when I think about my future, I think about me and Jesus walking arm in arm down the beach, 
And sometimes he's got to carry me. You've probably read the poem about that, right? That was about me, actually. The Footprints poem. You know what the word Hagar means? It means flight. It literally means to run away. And if you're really honest this morning, you feel like that could be my name too. Because I don't want to confront whatever that issue is. I don't want to have to face up to whatever that thing is that's coming up. I want to try to avoid. At a moment, a relational moment this last week where um, there was someone who I hadn't seen in several years and there was a very painful circumstance between the two of us and I wasn't, I'm not harboring any ill will against this person, um, but they were deeply hurt and I was just involved. It wasn't my, all my fault or anything. And I said to some of the staff that was with me, I've got to go hug that guy. Why would you do that? I said, because this is what love looks like. You go in when it's really awkward and you, you face whatever's going on and I just gave him a squeeze and I said, hey, it's so good to see you. And I meant it. Breaking the ice, giving an opportunity that if there's still hurt on his part and he wants to talk to me, we could, we could work that out. But it ended up being fine. I don't want to live my life avoiding. What does that mean? It means I don't trust God enough to rise up in me and give me what I need in that moment. And there are so many scary relational opportunities for you, isn't there? With family, with neighbors, with friends, with coworkers, where you feel like, man, I could blow this up if I say the wrong thing. And so we move away from people instead of moving toward them. Uh, when I think about this story, I think I don't want to be one who lives in escape. I want to be one who engages, engages with the love of Jesus and whatever the Holy Spirit will give me for the moment because he'll give you everything you need in the moment. And as I was praying and thinking about this, this was the phrase that came to my mind. You can't live life to the fullest in the midst of escape. Some of you are living in escape right now. You're just doing everything you can to try to get away from whatever that painful situation, that relationship, Whatever, whatever, whatever is causing you the most pain, you are running away like Hagar. And yet, the Lord will encounter you even when you're running away from things that are scary. And it's his kindness that will cause you to turn around and move in the direction he wants you to. So what happens? Verse 9, then the angel of the Lord told her, this is what you're supposed to do. Here's your marching orders. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. What? Is God pro-abuse? See, this is what I don't like about the Bible. Clearly God doesn't love women. No, there's, this is going to be a promise, so hang on there, because I felt like that when I read that. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. Go back where you belong. Go back to where you've got conflict. Go back to that place of pain. Go back and trust me that I am strong enough for you. Go back and realize that I'm the God who sees you and I will see you through. 
Go back because you're not alone. You thought you were alone and you escaped into the wilderness alone. You were even running away from me and yet I discovered you and I will, I will go with you. And it's gonna go so well that not only are you gonna, you're not gonna die, you're not gonna go back and, and die as of abuse. This encounter is gonna change you and you're gonna then go and, and submit in your proper place and in the midst of it, I'm gonna bless you immeasurably. I'm gonna make nations out of you. If you go back, I'll go with you. Verse 11, then the angel of the Lord also said to her, now, you are now with child and you will have a son and you will name him Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your misery. Ishmael means the God who hears. It's another little name of God slid in here. Verse 12, what do we know about Ishmael ahead of time? It's a prophetic word. He will be a wild donkey of a man. That's not a negative connotation, by the way. He's going to be independent. He's not going to be submitted like you are as a slave. He's going to be an, a burly mountain man. He's going to be a rugged individual. And when you look at the tribes that will come out of him in the nations, they are all Bedouin peoples. They're peoples that, are, uh, that love moving around. It's part of who they are. And this guy, Ishmael, his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him. That's a bummer. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. So there's some prophetic words about the future, but don't worry, Hagar, when you go back, I'm gonna protect you so much so you are gonna have this child and this is what you're gonna name him because you need to remember that I hear what has happened to you. And the same word for misery or affliction that she was suffering under um, Sarah is the same term that the angel of the Lord is hearing here. Like, I saw you. I know exactly what kind of abusive situation or difficulty you had. I got you. Verse 13. So she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, Jehovah Elroy. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. The rest of the story, so Hagar bore Abram a son. Abram gave him the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. Makes it hard to throw footballs back and forth when you're 86, I would think. Although, I don't know. I know some pretty healthy 86-year-olds. So, Hagar, as an Egyptian, would have been really familiar with gods that were made out of clay and rocks and things. The only gods that she really knew would be false gods that could be seen and the irony of the moment is her revelation is that she realized that God could see her. So the Hebrew word is Jehovah Elroy. Think Elroy from the Jetsons, you got it, right? You'll be a Hebrew scholar by the end of this message. And Hagar knew if God could be with her in the wilderness, he would be with her having to submit to Sarah and take her rightful place in the family. Now things 
later in Hagar's life will get difficult. There's going to be another test that's very similar with a teenage version of Ishmael in the wilderness. And if you want to look at that, it's in chapter 21. But once again, God hears and he sees in exactly the same way. It's this beautiful bookend to show, no, I'm not finished with you yet. I've got you. And so Hagar has this encounter with the angel of the Lord. She has an encounter that transforms her, that changes her. And God is not just the God of her masters, but now it's her God. And maybe you've been checking out Jesus and looking at spirituality, and yet it's still the God of your parents or the God of your friend or the God of your roommate. And now you've got a decision before you. Do you follow this God? Is he worth following? And I just want to cheer you on as you as you explore and you challenge and you ask hard questions and you even doubt who God is, we want to welcome you here and that kind of thinking in, our, in our, this place. So Hagar bears Abram a son. So apparently she did return with a submitted heart. I can imagine she told the whole story to Abram and Sarai and Abram named the Ishmael the child Ishmael, he doesn't go off the script because if God said it, I believe it. That settles it. We're doing it. And I wonder what Hagar said when he, she went, came back. So I just imagine her saying, I ran away from all of you because it was, I was so miserable and I thought I could not, I couldn't go on here. But the Lord met me. The one who sees me and told me that he would see me through. He told me to come back and submit to you and that's why I'm here. And Hagar thought that the circumstances in her life needed to be changed in order for her to be thriving, if you will. But in fact, what needed to happen was her heart needed to change and she needed a heart transplant. She needed a transformation. And it was uh, the theologian Donald Barnhouse from the last century. He said this, if we seek to change our circumstances, we will jump from the frying pan into the fire. Boy, haven't I done that before. We must be triumphant exactly where we are. It's not a change of climate we need, but a change of heart. The flesh wants to run away, but God wants to demonstrate his power exactly where we have known our greatest chagrin or difficulty or pain or trial. If you don't like the word chagrin, I'll bring it into the 2020s. I can't help but think that God is the one who sees us formed in our mother's womb in in Psalm 139. And he, the psalmist says, where can I go from your spirit? Everywhere I am, you're there. You're the God who sees me. And then Jesus, as he's teaching through his masterpiece in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, he says three times that he sees a certain kind of person. When you give, Give in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, go into your room to close the door. Pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Then when you fast, put oil on your head. Wash your face. In other words, don't act all mopey. So that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. God is the God who sees. It's not just Hagar in the Old Testament. We're not going to throw out the Old Testament, by the way. It's incredibly important. 
But we can always see that same truth in the New Testament. Why? Because God is the same today, yesterday, today, and forever. In Malachi, God says, I, I, the Lord, do not change. That means that this God sees you. Max Lucado said this, God sees us with the eyes of a father. He sees our defects, errors, and blemishes, but he also sees our value. The God who sees, sees you right where you are. You're not fooling him. He sees all of the stuff, and yet he still chooses to love you. As a three-time dad, I can tell you that I'm pretty aware where my kids struggle. I'm not blind to it. But my love for them is not contingent on them struggling. I mean, sometimes it makes it harder. But my son will always be my son. My daughters will always be my daughters, regardless of what their behavior does. I see their value. The, even the Hebrew word of seeing has this connotation or nuance of being worthy of being seen. I'm worthy of being seen. Hagar's saying to God, you, you, you know my name. You know who I am. Meaning she inher- holds inherent value in the eyes of God, the creator God. Tim Keller said this, God, God sees us where we are. He loves us as we are. He accepts us as we are. But by his grace, he does not leave us as we are. I just want to challenge you that this God who sees you, loves you where you are, but he loves you too much to leave you there. And that if you choose to walk with Jesus, he will begin to transform you and walk with you day by day. In the midst of this study, I ran across a short film. It's a 12-minute short film um, produced by Kathy Lee Gifford. Um, and it actually, it, it has Nicole C. Mullen singing this song. It is so powerful. I watched that thing like 20 times in my office this week. There's a reason why I ended up working on my day off, because I'm like, I just kept staring at this video. I'm like, this is so beautiful. So here's a little homework. If you choose to, you can just look it up on on their website, the, uh, godwhosees.com, or it's on YouTube. Just pop it up on your TV and watch it. It's 12 minutes. It's a beautiful song about Hagar first, and then um, Ruth, and then it talks about David, and then uh, ultimately, then it talks about Jesus, and it is very, very powerful. Just want to, I always want to like give you the real fun nuggets for later, right? Wish we could have time here, but as we close, He's Jehovah Elroy, the God who sees you. Since he's the God who sees you, he knows what you need before you ask for it in prayer. That's what Matthew 6 says. It doesn't mean don't pray because God already knows. He wants to hear our prayers. Matthew 6, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And when you think about your future, because he's the God who sees, you're never gonna be alone. That means you gotta start picturing your future different, guys. You just have to. Otherwise, you won't have hope. Without Jesus, you don't have hope. Hebrews 13 says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God is the one who sees you and hears you. Know that even when you feel unseen, God has never taken his eyes off of you. He has never lost sight of you. I hope that you find this name of God something that you hold on to 
And that when you're walking into really scary situations or having to walk back to where it has been the most difficult, you will have an encounter with the God who sees that will give you faith to stand because he's never gonna leave you. If you'd stand, I wanna pray for you. I pray, folks, if you'd come forward, we'd love to pray for you. Any need you have, physical, emotional, spiritual, financial, we would love to encourage you in that way. Really, um, just on a personal note, I'm really thankful uh, for my upcoming sabbatical. I know for some of you, they're like, this is so weird. Why do you get all this time off? Um, and afterwards, I think you're going to see why. Um, I've been in full-time ministry now for 30 years um, without really an extended break. And this is really a gift. So thank you for the grace. Um, but I believe great things are going to come, not only to my heart because I spend the extra time really seeking the Lord and doing the internal work that I need to do, but also for our staff that as I pull out, more of their gifts are going to be seen and things are going to happen that are going to be really good for their leadership development. So um, I can't wait to see what happens. If you see me in town during my sabbatical, don't do this. <laughs> Come up, talk to me. I'm an extrovert. I love people. I do this job because I love people. Um, what you shouldn't do is say, here's my list of things I want you to counsel and pray for me on. Because that's what I get a break from, right? So, Jesus, thank you for your goodness over us. Thank you for your grace. Your grace is sufficient for us. Your power is made perfect even when we're at our weakest. Thank you for dedicating babies. Thank you for getting to living in a country where we have the freedom to worship you openly. Thank you for the fact that you are the God who sees. And I pray that you would burn that truth into our hearts. Thank you for this family. And I speak a blessing over Neighborhood Church, meeting here in the dome and on the stream. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll see you in a few months.